0: with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night,
1: okay would you join me as we pray god we do pray that you would shine your light upon us thank you that you've gathered us here intentionally even if we think we're here by accident we're not and this gives us every reason to believe you mean to speak to our hearts personally and we thank you in advance for that in christ's name amen Well, in 2013, the Oxford Dictionary added a new abbreviation. F-O-M-O. Anybody know what that is? You are kidding me. Someone knew it. Fear of missing out. How many of you all knew that? Wow, I feel really stupid. I mean, you're sitting around reading the Oxford Dictionary all the time. Man. I really feel stupid. Okay. I mean, it would be three or four raising your hand, but like the whole place raised your hand. All right, I need to get past this. Right, the, the fear of missing out. Right, and um, I'll define it even though you already know what it is. Anxiety that an exciting or interesting event may currently be happening elsewhere, often aroused by posts on social media. Now even before social media was so social, I remember working with uh, college students and fear of missing out was a mark of freshmen. You might remember this if you went to college. And you know, it's that first year where you're just basically taking every leaflet at the activity fair, your schedule's totally crazy, right? But it doesn't go away, does it? It doesn't go away. I mean, it lingers behind our uh, keeping our options open It lingers behind this idea that we won't commit until the very last minute, right? It's in our lives. Now, in reality, missing the events, these events that we fear, has little impact on our lives in reality. But there is one event that you should not miss. There is one event that the Bible says that uh, you want to be very aware that's going to occur, and this is the return of the Son of God to earth, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it is a theme that you see running through the Bible. In the Gospels, Jesus talked quite a bit about it. He told parables about returning to earth, the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the servant and the master coming home. And as well, you see it talked about all throughout the letters of the New Testament, and especially in the book of Thessalonians, it's a major theme. The idea of the Christ, the Messiah, returning and coming back. Now, for modern people, and you might be in this category, it sounds like fantasy, right? It sounds like the stuff of fantasy. But when you think about it, it's really logical. It's logical. If you believe that we're not here by accident, if you believe God created this and he created us, wouldn't it make sense that he would return to this in us? Wouldn't it make sense that a personal God would want to see those that he's made? But in the early church, there was confusion about this, as there is today. Uh, In Judaism, uh, there was the belief that there would be one resurrection for all. And so when Jesus Christ was resurrected and people began to preach about it, they wondered, well, how can this one man's resurrection fulfill the resurrection for everybody? The Apostle Paul went on to clarify that when he said that Christ's resurrection was the first fruits of all those that would be raised who believe in him. But then there were others that said, well, maybe it's already happened, the second coming of Christ. Maybe we've missed it. They were fearing. Or others that thought, how about those that believed but died? Do they get left out of all the glory and the grace? And so Paul begins to instruct the people with a word that came from the Lord to him, a word of instruction that Jesus gave him. And underneath it, there are two themes that come out. As he explains and talks about what the return of Christ will be like, there are two things that can really encourage our faith today and that is when the return of Christ occurs, it'll be victory and intimacy. Victory and intimacy. So let's look at those two things together. First of all, the return of Christ and the victory. Um, How many of you have seen the film Creed? Anybody see the film Creed? Not as many that know FOMO. Okay. (laughs) But you need to watch more movies and not read the dictionary so much. No, anyway, (laughs) I'll get off of that. But... um, Anyway, in the film Creed, which is part of the Rocky series, uh, you know, it comes to the big fight, and uh, pretty Ricky Conlon is the nemesis. He's the adversary, and they're fighting in England in his hometown of Liverpool, and when it comes time for his entrance, the whole arena goes dark. Uh, All you can see is blackness and these little lights of all his fans, and then starts in the music, you know, a hip-hop tune that says, Don't Waste My Time. And then leading sort of the entourage is this fire breather. So you see darkness and just this guy blowing fire, and as it's not dark and the fire exposes the light, you see Conlon just holding his title, holding his belt. The way fighters enter the ring is often them trying to declare their victory early. And the way that God returns is doing a similar thing. We're told here that one, that there'll be a sound of trumpets. In the Old Testament, trumpets proclaim the presence of the Lord. They were also associated with battle. And so later in the passage, you heard Paul mention the day of the Lord. That's a phrase that you find both in the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament. And it refers to the same thing, even though there were little days of the Lord that happened in the life of Israel and the church, What it meant was this, that God would come and he would judge those that were opposed to him, judge those that were opposed to his people, and he would deliver those that faithfully followed him and loved him. And so this is the day of the Lord, and it's blown by trumpets. It's this coming that we're being told about, the final day of the Lord, the capital D day of the Lord. We're also told there's the voice of the archangel, Michael. Now, Michael is the prince of angels. He's only mentioned in one other book, the book of Jude in the New Testament, where we're told that he contended with the devil over the body of Moses. Now, that's sort of an interesting thing, isn't it? We'll have to wait until heaven to find out what that meant. But that Michael, you have the prince of all the angels there. And then we're told that the Lord descended in the clouds. Clouds always represent the glory of God in the Bible. And add to that that there was a cry of command from the Lord. So, all these three, three things together, uh, the cry of the archangel, the trumpet sound, the command of the Lord, all of them are for the purpose of one thing, and that is calling believers that have died out of the grave into the Lord. That's what all that is about, God's determination to raise believers that died to heaven to be with him. This is who Paul is talking about when he says those that have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for those that have died, believers that have died. Now, the Bible teaches a couple things about uh, those that love the Lord and die. One is when they die, immediately their souls will go to be with God in heaven. So when Jesus uh, is on the cross and he's being crucified, he gets crucified next to a thief, right? Gets crucified next to two thieves. One actually believes and he says, you know, Lord... Uh, you know, when you die, bring me into, you know, your kingdom. And Jesus says, "What? Today you will be with me in paradise." Right. So that means immediately. Even though the thief's body went to the grave, his soul went to be with the Lord. We're we'll told that. But also, what we're told is at that final day, souls and bodies will be joined. You see, the Christian faith pushed against Greek dualism of its day that believed that the body was holding you back. The body was actually an evil thing. In the Christian faith, counterculture said, no, the body is a good thing. God made the body, and the things that we do in the body are a good thing. Therefore, he is anxious that believers be united with their bodies, that we won't just dwell in some spiritual existence, because the vision of heaven is a new heaven and new earth, and, you know, you're going to probably need your body on earth, right? You've got to do some physical stuff there. You might have to pick up a shovel. You might want to take a drink out of a nice river, right? You're going to need your body. God knows that. But this means that sleep is not unconscious fellowship with God. It's conscious fellowship with God. But how does it take us to victory? Two things. First of all, victory over death. Now, in our modern day, death is often over-naturalized. That is, uh, typically, death is seen as just something natural that's part of matter and physical reality. But But our minds and hearts tell us different, right? Death feels like an enemy. Death feels like a robber. It robs the people that we love away from us. It robs us of the life that we love. Death is not normal. It's abnormal, even though it happens all the time. And so what you find here is God coming against this thing called death, this enemy. And we're told in the Bible that this enemy entered through sin. When the first man and woman turned away from God, they turned away from the Lord of life and death entered. And so the resurrection is victory over death. Let me read to you what Paul says in the book of Corinthians. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. So you heard what he was saying there. First of all, the tie between death and sin. But more so that Jesus' return is the final victory of God's people over the powers of death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. Jesus' resurrection from the grave wasn't just a matter of him overcoming physical death, this idea that, oh, good, now I can live. His death and resurrection was about him overcoming the judgment of sin that you and I deserve. Paul said at the end of the passage this idea that God does have righteous wrath. You know, if you and I have righteous wrath in this earth, if you read about things that are happening in the newspaper and it gets you mad when you hear a young teenager in our city getting, you know, blown away on the metro, or stabbed to death in the metro, or you hear about ISIS blowing up a bomb somewhere and killing women and children. You have righteous wrath at that moment. Well, God does too. It's only natural that he is. And what we're told, Christ on the cross took that righteous wrath. He took spiritual judgment so that you and I might be raised not only physically, but spiritually. And this also includes transformation. He says those words, and we shall be changed man, you know, where do you long to be changed? Where you just go, man, I wish I could be changed in this way in my life. I so long for it. And what we're told is that day will come. We shall be changed. We will be transformed. We will be glorified. We will be made like God, and it'll happen at his return. In the twinkling of an eye, boom, God's people will be changed. We will be as we were meant to always be, the person in your head that you want to be and the person that I want you to be and your neighbors want you to be. You will do that by God's power. But this victory over death, you know, it's something that uh, has always been a theme of celebration for the people of God. Some of you might remember that old spiritual ain't no grave gonna hold my body down. In fact, we've had it sung in this church by uh, our friend Mike Ferris. And if you haven't heard Ferris do that, he does a great version of it, Mike Ferris. But uh, the story on that song is it was written by a holiness preacher, Brother Claude, Brother Eli Claude. And the story says that at 12 years old, he had tuberculosis. And his family came in and prayed for him. And he leaped out of the bed and spontaneously began to sing, there ain't no grave can hold my body down. When I hear that trumpet sound, I'm going to rise right out of the ground. Ain't no grave can hold my body down. Well, meet me, Jesus, meet me. Meet me in the middle of the air. And if these wings don't fail me, I will meet you anywhere. Ain't no grace going to hold my body down. Grave, not grace. Ain't no grave going to hold my body down. He must have been reading our passage, right? This is what leaps out of this 12-year-old spirit. You know, we live in a day where... Um, We got a lot of superhero films, don't we? Lots of them. In fact, I read something funny recently where someone said that, you know, they don't know if they can keep up with any more superhero films. There's a lot of them. But in the world of Marvel superheroes, there are some heroes that have this ability, it's called the healing factor. You know what I mean? Uh, Like Hulk and Wolverine. No matter what happens, they actually heal right on the spot. And there are these other characters that are referred to as elders And they can't die, they have immortality. And the reason is, it's because death has banished them from its realm. They can't ever go into death. This is really a description, this is a fictionalization of the people of God, of what the, the Christian gospel says. You know, you have, if you trust in Christ, the Lord of life, you have been banished from the realm of death. You have been banished from it, you can't go in. Even if every day you want to enter into death, let me into death. You might physically die, you're not going to spiritually die. Because Jesus has closed those doors. And all the trust live in the, the land of life. But it's not just those that have died that experience that victory. Paul says, We who are caught alive, we who are alive, caught up, pulled up, and out. You know, those that are grabbed, the word actually means to be seized. God seizes those that are alive. Now, some people have reasoned because uh, Paul says we who are alive, that he was certain that he would be alive when Jesus Christ returned. But you heard it read just a few verses up. He says no one knows when that day will come. So it's doubtful that he's contradicting himself. What Paul is saying, rather, is that you and I are to live with an ever-present expectation that God might return today or tomorrow. Now, I don't know about you, but I'll just true confessions. I rarely believe that. I rarely think that. I think it's partly because, I th- you know, I think I'm smarter than I am. I think some of it is I'm, I'm sort of building, a busy building a pretty nice life here, at least in trying. You know, and I mean, Lord, come back, but i got a few goals I want to accomplish. You know, you got your five-year and ten-year goals you want to accomplish, Right? I'm going to interrupt things a little bit. And so, you know, you and I need to be reminded it's only good if God comes back. Now, Peter does say this, that he's not slow in bringing about the day of the Lord because there's this other part of this that goes, God, will you just come back? Lord, come back. I know people that are suffering. I know they're sick. We see the tragedies of the world. Just come back now. But Peter says the reason God is delaying isn't because he's not paying attention in heaven. He's waiting for more and more people to turn to Him. He's waiting for more and more people to come to know Him. Maybe that's going to be you tonight. Maybe the reason that God delayed His return is because tonight He is appointed that you believe and trust in Him. And so, it's not just those that are dead that enjoy this victory, but this does bring up a theological sort of conundrum, and that is... uh, what's understood as the rapture. Now, rapture is a theological term that refers to this idea that God will rescue uh, non-Jewish Christians and take them up to heaven before a great tribulation occurs. And, uh, you know, that's a belief that's probably, it's a couple hundred years old. It's a more popular theological belief. And let me say this on the front end. No one disputes that Jesus is going to return. No Christians dispute that. But the question is, is this passage teaching a rapture? And I would say I think there's difficulties with that view. First of all, uh, the two groups that Paul is mentioning here aren't Jews and Gentiles. They're dead and the alive. Those are the two groups that he's talking about. Second of all, the New Testament doesn't teach anywhere that the Christian church gets to uh, get out of persecution. In fact, Jesus taught a lot of parables about the fact that the church will suffer. But lastly, this phrase that says to meet the Lord in the air. You know, it's, in its original meaning. what it meant was the idea of a dignitary that visits, and the people would come to the edge of the town, and they would usher the dignitary in. And so the idea is of a returning king who is met by his people, and then the kingdom begins. So likely what we have here is not the church being ushered out, the Gentile church, but rather that Jesus Christ returns to earth and his people reign with him. And that's another part of this victory. In the book of Ephesians, we're told this. But God, being rich in mercy, was because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places. That language of being seated in the heavenly places is language of authority in reigning. And this is what's in store for the people of God. How do we know this? Well, Paul actually uses it very practically in the book of Corinthians. There's a couple Christians that are taking each other to court. There's a couple Christians that are mad, and they've got a lawsuit going, and they're going to uh, one of the Roman courts, and Paul says, can't you settle this within your own life? Don't you know that one day we will judge angels? He's saying that the average Christian, you will reign with Christ, and you will actually have a role where you will judge angels. And all of this is really just a fulfillment of what the book of Genesis said from the beginning where God makes the man and woman, and he wants them to be his vice-regents or his vice-gerents, his royal son and daughter, and they will reign on the earth. They will have dominion, positive dominion, and they will develop. Don't you see? You were born to reign. You were born to reign. And for those in Christ, you will realize that reign. You know, if somehow we could sort of take off the plaid and take off the jeans and just see, boom, what God's people will look like, the majesty, the glory. C.S. Lewis said, you know, if you saw a glorified Christian, if you saw someone that actually was glorified, you would be tempted to fall down and worship them because of their beauty and majesty. Now, two practical, I think, implications of this. One, Mike mentioned last week, is our work. Do you work in light of the second coming of Christ? Do you understand that my work is part of what God has given me to reign. You might be a school student. Do you understand that you are called to reign in your studies? That doesn't mean you're always going to get A's, but you're to be a faithful steward. But there's a second thing, too, and that is it has to do with power and earthly authority. One of the things that's so tempting, especially in our city, right, is the lust for authority, the lust for power. You know, you go to a social gathering maybe, and this important person's over there, and you feel like a zero all of a sudden. Or you meet someone, and they have their card, or they have their certain extension, or they work in this office, and you immediately feel like, I'm small, they're big. All of this earthly authority that sort of plays with our heads. And when you understand that that's, you know, God cares about earthly authority, He's given it to be steward. But I'm telling you, it's small potatoes. Whatever, if you, you might have a position of great authority here. Amen, do well with it, but it's small potatoes. You might be here going, I got no authority. I got no home, I got no bank account, I get no respect in society. I'm someone that basically is not even part of majority culture. I've got no power. Well, let me tell you this. You've got more authority than you could ever imagine. As you were in the name of Christ Jesus... And so the Lord brings us together with reigning in authority. But lastly, we got to hit this last point, intimacy. We have that phrase, and I just love it, so, will we, so we will be with the Lord forever. So we will be with the Lord forever. Of all the terrible effects of what we call sin, Of all the terrible things that have happened, oppression, injustice, hatred, addiction, what all the things that happen because of a sin-ridden world, you know what the worst one is? It's to be separated from the God that made you. That was the real heartbreaker. I can promise you when Adam and Eve sinned and got booted out of the garden— There were a lot of sins they saw, but what they missed was the intimate fellowship they had. You were made to live in unbroken communion in perfect fellowship with the God that made you. You were made to know him more intimately than you know your best friend or your spouse or your sister or whoever it is. To think his thoughts after him, to complete one another's sentences. You were made to know God at that level. And the loneliness we wear in this world, that we feel in this world, the ache that we really feel is that. It's underneath all the other aches. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we don't need one another. But it's the Lord. And the Son of God came that you and I might be reconciled to God. And so, you know, you've got this chasm between you, and the Son of God comes where I can begin to actually have fellowship and intimacy with God. But it ain't perfect, right? I mean, it's not for me. we got days where we feel distant. We have days where our guilt's hanging on. It, you know, we feel like, ah, you know, hot and cold. And at times, God, I don't even know if I want to be in a relationship with you. And the other times, I'm like, this year, the greatest thing in the world. But one day, that'll go away. And we're told what this intimacy, well, you know, we're not given a lot, but we're given some of what this intimacy will mean. It will mean goodness and mercy. David says this, and Mike will preach on it. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. It means as well the idea of beauty. David writes, this is what I seek and I long for, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord and that I might see your beauty. Your longing for beauty in whatever form will be, you'll endlessly enjoy it as you see the Lord of beauty, the Lord of glory. To be intimate forever also means joy and eternal pleasures. We're told, you heard it in the Psalm 16 reading where he says, O Lord, in your presence is joy, full joy, and also at your right hand are eternal pleasures that I have with you. That means if you are someone that desires pleasure and I desire pleasure and you do, heaven will be eternal, never-ending pleasure and joy. We get a little taste of it now. It'll be in full swing then. We're also told this intimacy will mean a home. Jesus said, I, in my father's house, I've got my, he's got many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back and get you so you can be with me where I am. And then lastly, we get this wonderful vision from the book of Revelation with metaphors he's trying to communicate to us. No longer will there be anything accursed But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. That means they'll belong to Him, their identity. And night will be no more. They will need no lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. They will reign forever and ever with Him. Now, If you knew that day was coming tomorrow, if you really believed it, if I believed it, how would it change you? If you weren't afraid to die, if you knew that you would be immortal and you will live in perpetual healing, what faith risk would you take? What would you do with that confidence? that you know that you will reign with him. It's got to mean something to us, doesn't it? If we understand it, it's got to change us some way in our personal lives, in our ministry, in our relationships. The return of Christ is going to be so good. Let's live now in light of his return. Pray with me. God, thank you for the assurance, uh, that he will return. Um, we don't know the day, we don't know the hour, but we know for sure that you will return son of God. Make us ready, make us awake and aware Lord in Christ's name. Amen.